Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. Back there, Roxanne, you want to stand up? Say hi. That's my wife, Roxanne. It'll be, uh, I'll finally get it right this time, Roxanne. It'll be 34 years next weekend. This weekend, this coming weekend, 34 years this weekend that uh, we've been married and we have three children and four grandchildren. So we just had an opportunity. Uh, we were in Galesburg, Illinois. We're originally from Illinois. We're, I, I always say, I'm just a boy from Illinois. There's nothing special about me. Illinois, where at? Orland Park. Okay, we love Chicago. We were in Chicago for years. So you'll find out that I'm very family-oriented as well because the kingdom of God is all about family. It's all about family. It's not about all the other, you know, trappings that we deal with. It's all about family. And so when we find family connections, we've got to talk about them. We've got to find out. You know, in the Mennonite church, anybody Mennonites in here, former Mennonites, a couple, they have this crazy thing called, there, there's one back there. I see, I see that hand. Uh, they have this thing called the Mennonite game. Right? You remember the Mennonite game? And what the Mennonite game is, is whenever you find out you have somebody that's a Mennonite, you talk and you recognize their name as being a Mennonite name. You talk about, yeah, who are they related to and who do they know? And so I did not come from Mennonite background. I'm Baptist. Any Baptists in the room? Former Baptist? Okay, that's good. I feel, now I really feel like I'm part of family. So anyway, I was a Baptist. I was not Mennonite, but the first time that I sat down with my regional minister in the Mennonite church, they played this Mennonite game and they'd say, oh yeah, you're Schwartz and Druber and you know, so and so and yeah, and you're, you're Yoder and you know, so and so and so and so. And they came to Hutchings and there was this dead silence in the room. And he says, well, it's nice to have you here, and moved on and played the Mennonite game with everybody else. So, anyway, it's a real joy to be here. I bring you greetings from Randy Clark and Global Awakening. Uh, if you're partners in Harvest, uh, you're part of Revival Alliance. And uh, I just got a chance to meet last week at Voice of Apostles with John Arnott. And if you're connected with Bethel, with Bill Johnson, and uh, amazing time just to be. I mean, that's we had over 7,500 people in the Music City Center in Nashville, and it was a blowout. And uh, it was uh, it was an awesome time. And we live, Cameron. You know what? We live in a day where there's just so many meetings you can go to, and so many conferences to take care of. It's hard to know, you know. But I want to. Uh, we're going to be having. Uh, Voice of Apostles next October, a year from now, um, a little over a year from now, in Lancaster. So you ought to come. Literally, if you come, I'll, I'll get you in, man. I mean, I'm just going to I give you an extended invitation, especially an invitation to come to Voice of Apostles, because it's where you and you and your amazing wife come, and uh, it's it's all the guys. I mean, it's John and uh, it's Randy and it's Bill and it's Georgian and it's Che and um, Heidi, Heidi and Roland, yeah, it's incredible time. So uh, I'm going to get your Bibles out. I'm going to take you to Acts 3, and then I'm going to, uh, um, and, and if you don't have a Bible, then you must have an app, an iPod or an iPad or a knee pad or something like that, whatever, whatever you've got to, uh, you know, to get your, your iPhone. Um, I uh, pastored for 35 years starting out as a Baptist, and then uh, moved uh, when Randy and I were together in March of 1984. We were Baptist pastors together in southern Illinois. We were both hungry for God. And uh, Randy invited a team from the vineyard in Anaheim, California, to come into his church in March of 1984. I was part of those meetings. I'd helped Randy kind of arrange it, and that was where we just totally got ruined for God. I mean, we just got blasted by the Holy Spirit, and the very first kingdom message that I ever heard that made sense was spoken by Blaine Cook. Uh, and Blaine Cook, for those of you who know, is the guy that came into Randy's church from the vineyard, was uh, John Wimber's basically spiritual son, and uh, just wrecked us. As a matter of fact, the name of the church that Randy pastored was Spillertown Baptist Church, and we called that those series of meetings over four days the Spillertown Massacre. We called it the Spillertown Massacre because we were so impacted by the Holy Spirit. We just we just encountered God in a way that most of us had never encountered Him before. We saw more healings and more miracles take place in a four-day period than any of us had seen in our whole lives. And on top of it, so we were ruined for anything else except Kingdom Christianity. 
You know, when, when you know that it's real and you feel the presence of God and you know it's real and it's available, you don't want to go back. Is that right, guys? You just don't ever want to go back. I mean, going back to the old ways is just like, you know, it's eating like uh, last year's food. I mean, nobody would, would ever do that. So, se- so that's the first reason we call it Spiller Time Massacre. Second reason we call it Spiller Time Massacre is because most of the pastors that were in those meetings ended up losing their jobs within the next six months. Because, you know, we tried to come back and give it into our churches, and our churches weren't exactly happy about it. But uh, it's okay. It was, you know, sometimes getting fired is the greatest thing that can happen to you. Because it knocks you out of your place of comfort and complacency and knocks you out of a place where everything is familiar and you get into a place where God can really speak to you and take you into the destiny that he has for you. Could I get an agreement in the room? Anybody? How many of you know that when you were born into this world, as a matter of fact, before you were born, when you were conceived, according to Jeremiah chapter 1, that God had a dream in his heart for you? God said to Jeremiah, before you were conceived in your mother's womb, I knew you. What that means is that everybody who made it out of the womb, who who made it, in, out of the womb and is still living and breathing today has a dream of God that is yet to be fulfilled. I don't care how old you are, that dream is yet to be fulfilled because your purpose isn't complete yet. I don't care what, what your body says to you. I don't care what your family says to you. I don't care what your finances say to you. I don't care what anybody else says to you. I don't care what your culture says to you. The bottom line is, if you were born and you've made it in this world so far, you still have a dream and destiny for your life. And every bad, nasty thing that's ever happened to you, whether it's stuff that happened that you never asked for, if it's stuff you were born into, if it's stuff that happened through your parents, it happened through you know, going to war, going to whatever, uh, or if it's stuff that you did yourself, that you made poor choices, and those poor choices brought a lot of bad stuff into your own life. It doesn't matter. God is willing to see the dream and purpose of your God of your life fulfilled, and He will do it if you'll just trust Him and have faith to believe that my days, my best days, are not over with yet. Everybody, look at me. Say this: my my best days are yet to come. I have yet to fully fulfill God's dream for my life. No matter what the devil throws against me. No matter what choices that I made, they do not invalidate God's dream for my life. Amen? Amen. So, uh, I have the privilege of leading a Global School of Supernatural Ministry, which uh, is uh, a nine-month uh, on-site school. Uh, actually, it's a two-years school where students come from all over the world and uh, it, we have the distinction of bringing in major apostolic leaders and teachers. We bring in, obviously, Randy Clark, Tom Jones, Roland Baker, Leif Hetland. Um, we bring in Weston Stacy Campbell. We bring in just uh, um, Mark Verkler, Lee Grady, uh, just all of the major leaders, whether they be apostolic uh, leaders, uh, pastors, teachers or evangelists that are impacting the revival that's happening in your world. And listen to your pastor when he says to you that this is the greatest day to live as a believer in Jesus Christ. There is no other day that's been like the day that we're living in because there have been, there's never been more nations, more people groups, more folks impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the world right now. It is the greatest day to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't read the Gospels and say, oh, if I I can only live back when Jesus was living. Don't read the book of Acts when we're talking about today to say, oh, if I'd only live back in that day. My folks, that was a drop compared to what's being poured out on this, by the Spirit of God in the world today. And we need to wake up and realize, yeah, it's happening right now. History is being made right now. I, I do believe, I, I, I don't believe the world is going to end tomorrow. I think it's going to go on for a while. I really do. I know that's shocking to some folks. And with all the talk about what's going to happen in September and everything, people say, what? I'm telling you, I think we're still going to be writing church history books a hundred years from now. We're still going to be writing church history books a hundred years from now. And right now you're living in the midst of some of the greatest church history that's ever been made on the face of the earth. 
I'm telling you, I see it all over the world. I see it. It's happening right now. It's just that America has been slow to catch up on it. We've been slow. We've been so comfortable in our own version of Christianity that we have not come to fully understand what God is doing in the whole rest of the world. And it is mind-boggling. And here's the, here's the crazy thing about it, is that the rest of the world looks to America for leadership, and yet we have a tendency to be falling back. But God is raising up churches like New Day. God is raising up networks like Partners in Harvest. God is raising up, at its past 20 years since the Toronto Blessing on. And by the way, how many of you know that the Toronto Blessing is still going on? You represent that the Toronto Blessing is still going on. This church says the revival is still happening. You need to declare. Guys, okay, I... I get very dialogish, so excuse me for a minute. But anyway, turn to somebody and say, we represent that the Toronto Revival is still happening right here in Vandalia, Michigan. Amen. Amen. That's right. All right. So anyway, so I get to, I get to uh, go and uh, raise up amazing students. And by the way, when you think of the word students, you think of you know kids just coming out of high school or something like that. People ask, what's the average age of global school? And I said, well, let's see. One of our young ladies turned 18 this last year. Why did they were a global school? And another one of our young ladies turned 75 when they were a global school. So we have this amazing richness of diversity of age, of background, of racial, of of um, from national origins, and so it's just an amazing place to be. The other thing that I, I get to do is I'm part of a, I direct a online program called Christian Healing Certification Program. And for those that can't travel to Bethel or can't travel to to Mechanicsburg or can't do a, a nine-month school, we have a, a school that actually trains people how to minister in physical healing, inner healing, and deliverance, and actually helps you eventually become certified in training people how to do this within the church, within medical institutions, uh, throughout throughout the whole world. And so there there are eight week courses. Uh, you can take them as as you want. But my wife is a facilitator. And it's really uh, state-of-the-art online education. How many of you know that education, that's where education is going? It's all online. And so the church is finally taking advantage, hallelujah, of the, of the technical abilities that God has given us in this world. So it's, it's just an amazing and a great blessing to do that. I want to take you today into the story in Acts chapter 3. And I want you to uh, see here. Uh, about an amazing story that as I have read commentaries throughout the years, and I've read just about every commentary I can lay my hands on about this story, and this is what is known as narrative theology. Say, say the words with me. Narrative theology. You see, for most of the time, the church has taken the, the stories in the Gospels and the stories in the books of Acts, and they say, well, that's history. My friends, that's not just history. It's literally showing us what's available for you and I today. And it's building a case of theology based upon the movement and power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to challenge you today that every time you read something in the Gospels, every time you read about a miracle or something that was transformative in the book of Acts, if, the, if they were able to do it then... We can do it now. We can do it now. So I want you to take a look with me in Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. 
And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when you had decided to release him. I'm going to stop there. I'm stopping right at the beginning statement of Peter's sermon. The question always comes for anybody that's sitting in a church like this. Is that you tell me that revival is taking place. You tell me that transformation is happening in cultures. You, te- you, you tell me that millions of people are coming to Christ. That You know, I, I just had a chance to meet with Leif Hatland, uh, who's a dear friend of mine. Leif Hatland uh, is a spiritual son of Randy Clark's. He is a Norwegian Baptist pastor that got imparted by Randy Clark in 1995. And since then, God has given him favor to go into Pakistan. He goes into Pakistan, and he has such favor with not only the governmental heads in Pakistan, but he has favor with the religious heads of Pakistan. Actually being able here six months ago, being able to go into the Sharia law school in Pakistan and be able to teach on love. And he is known in Pakistan as the ambassador of love. He's known by governmental officials and by religious officials as the ambassador of love. And because he's come into that, th- that place, into that country, that for, I mean, Americans are not very well welcomed in Pakistan. Everybody smile. That's just the real, real. But he's a Norwegian, even though he lives in America. And, and he's blonde hair, blue eyed. And here he is in Pakistan. In the past 15 years, he's seen one million Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ. One million Muslims. We hear stories of whole villages of Muslims that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because they get a vision or a dream of, of this man standing in a white robe with, with scars in his hand and feet. And then a missionary happens to walk into town the very next day and they say, please tell us about this man, this, this man in the white robe. We don't know who he is, but he showed us his love. And the whole village comes to Christ. So you hear all this amazing stuff that's happening in the world and you say, well, what does that mean for me? Right here in Vandalia, Michigan. What about me? Well, there's three things that I want you to see. The movement of transformation that takes place in people who you and I may not consider qualified. Who you and I might not consider worthy. You and, my, you and I might not even consider to be eligible for the kind of thing that happens with them next. Go to the next slide if you would, please. This is a story about transformers and transformation. You see, Bill Johnson puts it this way. Transform people, transform churches. Transform churches, transform cities. And transform cities, transform nations. But it starts with one person. Next slide, please. God is the divine initiator of change. Dale Stahl told me that. The Holy Spirit is the means of the change. And transform humans are the delivery mechanism of change. You know, when it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, that the glory of God, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Back in the day when I read that, I think, well, that's, some glory cloud or some angel or, you know. And then when I listen to TV evangelists, oh, they're going to put up satellites all over the world and that's what's going to happen. And, you know, there's, everybody's going to have a TV and they're going to be able to watch TV and that's how it's going to happen. Guys, I was deceived. 
I totally had no clue about God's real plan. You see, who are the carriers of the glory of God? If, yeah, it's not angels. Angels don't carry the glory. Clouds don't carry the glory. We are the glory carriers. We are the mechanisms, the vehicles by which God has limited Himself. And He said, I want the temples of the Holy Spirit that I have created and made new creations. I want them to carry my glory to the far ends of the earth. So that Habakkuk chapter 2 will come to pass. That the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. You need to understand very clearly that God has limited the, the, the restoration and the transformation of this earth back to the original dream that he had for this earth, he's limited it to you and me. A lot of you don't get that yet, but you're going to get it here in a little bit. You need to understand that the reason why he put the Holy Spirit in us and that we became temples of the Holy Spirit is that we become agents of transformation throughout the whole earth And as we obey God, what happens is that the glory that's already in us gets released out onto other people. You know, you release a lot of stuff on folks, whether you realize it or not. You know, your attitude, depending upon what your attitude is, you can walk into a room and change the atmosphere of a room. How many of you know folks who've walked into a room and the atmosphere has changed in a very negative way? Anybody been there? I've been in churches like that. You know, it's somebody walks into the room, maybe it's the church boss, not the pastor. The church boss walks into the room, and all of a sudden every the atmosphere changes. You know, maybe you've got somebody in your family that maybe is the one that stirs up the turmoil all the time, and everybody's really happy until they walk into the room. Well, for Christians, for believers in Christ as disciples, we are to change the atmosphere of every room we walk into because we carry the glory of Christ. We carry the faith of Jesus Christ. We carry the love of God so that when we walk into a room, people should feel the power of love. So that's how God's glory gets carried throughout the earth. Now, what you're going to see in this story very quickly is the movement of transformation of what happens to men, to a man, and then to a whole group of men. So first of all, I want you to see, go to the next slide if you would, please. I want you to see his movement in two men. We have Peter and John. I want you to think about a little timeline here real quick. Historians and and biblical scholars believe that this event only took place only a few weeks after the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost was an awesome day. It was the birthday of the church. It's a great beginning of a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We all know that what the day of Pentecost was when 120 people were meeting in an upper room and the Spirit of God came upon them. And they were fit, they spoke with other tongues. A mighty uh, rushing wind came into the room. They had tongues of fire upon their heads. And the sound was so great that it literally caused, caused thousands of people who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost to come and gather where they were. And Peter preached the greatest sermon in all of church history. And on that day, 3,000 men were saved. Now, it doesn't record the women, but we believe it's got to be more, obviously, because obviously there are more there were men and women there. But it was that was maybe just a few weeks after this event. Ten days, ten days, ten days before Pentecost, Jesus ascended into heaven. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the disciples the Great Commission. And he said, Go ye therefore into all the world. Uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. We see in another passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he tells them to go but tarry in Jerusalem and wait until the promise from the Father comes on high, and then you will be my witnesses. So the ten days was waiting for the promise of the Father. We know that Jesus... At that point, once he gave the Great Commission, once he spoke to the disciples, everything that they needed to know, he literally rose up from the ground. He ascended up from the ground, and he was seated with Christ. He was seated with his Father at the right hand of his Father. At that point, we know that's when he took his seat uh, next to his Father. Forty days before that, 
we, and during those 40 days, we have the resurrected Jesus uh, around the earth. He's walking the earth. And it says he's appearing to over 500 people. So that's 40 days. And you know what happened at the beginning of those 40 days? The resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death and rose from the grave. Three days before that, he was crucified. And the night before he was crucified was the worst day in these two men's lives. I want you to think about this for a moment. Peter and John had spent three and a half years with Jesus. They were part of his inner circle. John was so close to Jesus that he would lay his head on his, on his chest. Peter was such, such an impassioned disciple that he kept declaring the things that he would do for Jesus. That indeed that he would go to the death for Jesus. He would never betray Jesus. He would always stick with Jesus no matter what. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, every one of the disciples abandoned Jesus. And Peter, the one who is the most vocal about it, not only denied Jesus once, but he denied him three times. The third time he was cursing, cursing within earshot of Jesus. My friends, what's the message in this? In a little less than just a couple of months, They went from being men that if you and I got to judge their spiritual character and what they had done, we would say that they are forever disqualified from ministry. We would say that they had sinned so badly that they could never be qualified again. And yet with just in a couple of months, they went from being complete, utter failures to being men that are not only preaching the greatest sermon in all of history, but they're, they're doing a miracle that you're going to see in a minute brings light, life, and revival to the darkest city of that time. So here's what I want to tell everybody in this room. If you've done something with your life that you feel like disqualifies you, if you were born into a family or into a situation, or into a city, that you feel like you're on the back side of the desert and nobody knows who you are or where you are, and that disqualifies you. If you were, if, if things have happened in your life and they're not the way that you dreamed that they would be and you feel like, well, God must have put a, a red mark on my back and said, well, everybody's going to get blessed except this one, and you feel disqualified, I want to say to you, you're listening to a lie. If you feel disqualified in any way, shape, or form to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit to be used to bring transformation, healing, and miracles into this world, if you feel disqualified to do that at all, you're listening to a lie. Here's what Bishop Joseph Garlington says out of Pittsburgh. He says, that which you think disqualifies you actually qualifies you. And that which you think qualifies you actually disqualifies you. See, all of our seminary degrees, all of our, I mean, I'm getting my doctorate in ministry. I believe in, in study. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you think degrees and reading books and being, you know, have, having big churches and having big places and conferences somehow qualifies you to do big things, you just don't understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God says, I'm not, you know, those, those, those things are awesome, but I'm looking for sons and daughters. I'm looking for sons and daughters who love who they are in Christ and take that love out into the world and let my love be a vehicle of transforming power into people's lives. Everybody's qualified in this room today. Turn to somebody and say, I'm qualified and you're qualified. Do it right now. So secondly, I want you to see the movement of transformation in this man. You know, there's very little detail about this man, but this is what we do know. He was 40 years old. He was 40 years old. Number two, he was born into a situation he never asked for. It says he came from his mother's womb, lame. Which means that from from his bottom down, from here down, he had no movement. He had no operation in his legs. And in that day, 2,000 years ago, 
We didn't have all the amazing disability benefits. We, there weren't wheelchairs. They barely had, they barely had, uh, crutches and that was about it. But in his case, they, it says that he had to be carried along. That is, he, he wasn't using crutches. He had to be carried along. So he's born into a situation he never asked for. He's born into a situation where he's disabled from birth. He's born into a culture that considers him to be a cursed person because he was disabled from birth. So imagine your identity being because of the way that you were born, you're a cursed person. That's what his identity has been. But here's one thing I do know about this guy, Cameron. He's smart. And here's how I know he's smart. This guy can't produce anything for himself. He can't even cook for himself. He has to, you know, he can barely care for himself. But one thing he does know, he can raise money. And he knows something about Jewish law. I know he's, he's gotta be a Jew because he knows something about Jewish law. And in Jewish law at that time, if you give money to the poor, that's an act of worship. Our brother Israel was talking about alms. Literally alms. So if you give an alm, you're doing an act of worship. So what does he do? He has his friends take him every day to camp out at the beautiful gate of the temple, right there where everybody's going into the temple. So he knows where how to make money. He knows to be at the place where to where to get the most money. So this is his situation. He is literally on the ground. He's got his hand up, his head down. Because you see, in that culture, beggars are never to look you in the face because they're in a position of shame. They're in a position of shame because why? Because they're cursed. Because the belief is that he was born with this defect because of something either he did or his parents did. If you want to reference John chapter 9, the Pharisees asked that of Jesus. Who sinned? His parent, did he sin or did his parents that he was born blind like this? So understand, this is the man's position. Now here's the other thing. Because he's born with this defect, he's a Jew. Not only is he cut off from society, not only is he not able to be a productive member of society, but he's not even able to go into the temple to worship God. Because in Levitical law at that time, if you were born with a defect, you were not allowed to go in and worship God. So he's also cut off from a relationship with God. He's cut off to going in and praying with, praying to God for the rest, with the rest of his people. God has given me, uh, incredible thing that's been happening over the last two and a half years in that I've begun to see, uh, an incredible thing happen with folks who have post-traumatic stress disorder. About two and a half years ago, Randy, I was at a school of healing with Randy Clark, and a guy came up and asked him if if Randy would pray for him for his post-traumatic stress. And because Randy is not about God's manpower for the hour, he's about equipping and releasing the body of Christ to be in the fullness. Randy turns to me and says, Mike, I'll stand with you, but I want you to pray for him. Now, folks, I had never prayed for anybody with post-traumatic stress in my life. I cut, When I was church planning, I spent 10 years in the counseling field. I was in social work, and I worked with adolescents and families. I worked with people who had trauma, but I never really knew that I'd ever prayed for anybody with post-traumatic stress. So this guy was an Iraqi and Afghanistan war veteran. He'd been out of the, the service for five years. He'd been in 20, over 20 years in the service. He was suffering with night terrors, night sweats, panic attacks. He had chronic pain in his body. He was always on alert for threats. Uh, he was always depressed, irritable, had bouts of rage. And he had come to Christ, but he knew that he needed more. So we met with him in that day. And as I began to pray for him, the Holy Spirit began to download to me just a very simple prayer model to pray for him. And as I prayed for him, and I and I'd only prayed the promises of God over him, but I broke the power of the enemy's torment in his life. Because I'm going to tell you, anybody who has post-traumatic stress is being tormented by the enemy. Being tormented with fear. They're being tormented with anxiety. They're being tormented with the traumatic images of the things that have happened to them. And as, as we saw God just break the power of that stuff off of him, he got completely free. 
He hadn't slept in over five years, more than two hours at a time. And that night, for the first time, he slept eight hours. He had no nightmares, no night tears, no night sweats. He came back the next day. He says, I'm free. I'm free. I'm completely free. We're now two and a half years later. Not only is he praying for other veterans, but he's also developing a ministry to help veterans and active duty soldiers in dealing with post-traumatic stress. Since then, uh, I've been able to uh, go all over the world. I've been... Uh, last year, I was in 26 different cities around churches uh, near military bases, training prayer ministers how to pray for people with PTSD. I've trained over 3,000 people in this prayer model, and we have seen literally thousands of people healed of post-traumatic stress disorder. Veterans, active duty soldiers, folks who have been ch- uh, abused as children, physical sexual abuse, uh, adults who have been abused as adults, uh, adults who been in natural disasters. We've seen them all get set free in Jesus' name. But the point that I'm wanting to make here is this. Most folks with post-traumatic stress will not come to church. You know why? They won't come to church because, first of all, a lot of times because their senses are so stirred up by their post-traumatic stress, they can't stand the music. They can't stand the bright lights. The, The soldiers can't stand to be in a crowd. Because they're always on alert for threats. They can't sit with their back to a door because they're paranoid about a threat that's going to, might, might walk in the door. And so they can't even come to church. So we have a, a whole harvest field of men and women that are tormented out there that desperately need Jesus, that desperately know the power of Jesus Christ, and they'll never walk. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people in the church that have, don't have post-traumatic stress. There are. But I'm thinking specifically about our veterans and first responders. Most of them will not walk into a church because it's too painful and it's not a safe place for them. I want to say to you in Jesus' name that God is raising up churches like this. Who You're not about the event. You're not about the big guy. You're about family. Where they feel loved, where they feel cared for, where they feel respected. You're not out to give a, put a religious trip on them. You're just trying to love on them. And it's churches like this, Cameron, small churches like this, where the, where the greatest expression of God's love is happening in the American church today. I'm just telling you, we've been to the big churches. We've been to the churches with 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 people. And while they may have awesome music and awesome messages and great buildings and everything like that, you can walk in and out of there just like you attended a movie. But it's in small churches like this where people get the expression of God's love the greatest. So somebody say, yay, small churches. Doesn't mean that we don't grow. Doesn't mean we don't get bigger. But don't look down on yourself because it's here in this context where people feel the most like family, where they feel the most love. Where am I going with? Here's this man. And here's what happens to this man. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. Now, here's an interesting piece. If you read the Gospels and the book of Acts, the greatest miracles that are recorded in Jesus' ministry or the disciples' ministry are not because they were out on a mission trip. It was not because they're going to say, okay, today, let's go see if we can heal somebody. Let's go find somebody that has a demon and cast them out. No, they were on their way to some place. Peter and John were on their way to temple. Jesus was on his way to another city when he encountered blind Bartimaeus. Over and over again, if you, all you have to do is study, and you can do this on your Bible, on your, on your computer Bible, just put on their way, or on the way. And you're amazed at how many times it pops up, and most of the major miracles that took place, not in a church building, not in a religious meeting, but as people were on their way to Walmart. I don't know if they had Walmart in Jerusalem, but they were on their way to Walmart. You know, they were on their way to the post office. They were on their way to work. They are on their way to school. And on the way, a miracle took place. Peter and John were on the way to the temple. And as they were going into the temple, going into the they see this man here. Now, here's an interesting piece. This man is 40 years old. That was his place. That means he'd been there for a while. Not only was he there every day, 
but he'd probably been sitting there for years. Do you know how we know that? Because if you continue reading in Acts chapter 3, everybody knew this guy. That's why it became such a huge thing in the city, because everybody knew that guy. That means that he'd been sitting there for years. You know what that means? It means Peter and John had walked by him before. That means the disciples had walked by him before. Guess what? Jesus walked by him before. What does that say for you and me? See, you and I are always looking. You know, if, if we see somebody that is in a wheelchair or somebody that's got really bad, you know, is bad off in terms of their physical condition, we think, wow, I wish Benny Hid could show up and pray for that guy. You know, I, I wish, you know, some Reinhard Bonnke could come and pray for that guy or some big evangelist or somebody. Randy Clark ought to come and pray for that guy. Brothers and sisters, that's not what it's all about at all. I'm just telling you right now that the same spirit that lives in Benny Hinn, Reinhard Bonnke, and Randy Clark, Bill Johnson, John Arnott, lives in you. And it's the very same spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, that raised Jesus' dead body from the grave. That is, that spirit destroyed the power of death that was in it was on Jesus' body, rose him up from the grave, and the Bible says, Paul says, that if the same Spirit that raised Jesus' dead body from the grave lives in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's not when you die to go to heaven. That's right now here. And the kind of life he's talking about is the kind of Zoe glory life that releases the power of God everywhere we go. So Peter and John... See him today. You know, in John chapter 5, they were asking Jesus, how could you walk into the pool of Bethesda and only pick out one guy to heal? There were literally hundreds of people around that pool. And Jesus said, well, I only do what I see my Father doing. So on that day, and it doesn't mean that we don't pray for everybody that we have an opportunity to, but on that day and that time, Peter saw the Father getting ready to do something. He was already doing something on this man. And so he reached out to him. And as the man, once again, remember his position, head down, because he's cursed and he's in shame. He's got his hand out like this. And Peter and John say, look at us. The man raises his head, expecting to receive something. This man had more faith than all of Israel expecting to receive something. And Peter and John looked at him and said, Silver and gold I don't have because I'm a pastor. I'm sorry, that's not in there, is it? It's a... Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Can I, can I borrow you? He grabbed him by his hand, and you're going to leap when you come up, okay? And when he pulled up, when he raised him up, he raised him up, and he raised up with a leap. He left higher. And now here's what begins happening. Walk for me. He began to walk. You know why? Because all of a sudden, for the first time in 40 years, listen to me, strength came in to his hips, to his legs, to his knees, to his calves, and to his ankles, and to his feet. Now, if you know anything about what happens when somebody stays in a bed for a few weeks and they're not able to move, it's called entropy. That is, the muscles begin to shrivel up and they begin to lose strength. This guy, in an instant, after 40 years of never having any movement, all of a sudden has complete usage and strength in all of his extremities. He's completely, completely restored. So not only is he walking, walk for me, then he's also leaping. Leap, you know, when, when, when the Indianapolis Colts lose, we don't leap, do we? Some of us do if we're Chicago Bears fans, but anyway, you know, um, but you don't, you don't leap when you're not full of joy. This man was full of joy. He was leaping and it says he was walking, he was leaping and finally he was praising God. And see, folks, that's a picture 
of the term that the Bible uses for salvation, sozo. Physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. And it says that for the first time in his life, he walked in with Peter and John to the temple to worship God. He was completely restored in every area of his life. Come on, somebody praise God. You see, there's one thing we've got to understand about this amazing salvation he's given us. This amazing salvation he's given us is not just so that we get to go to heaven. It's not about just going to heaven. See, I'm a Baptist. I'm an expert at this. See, we Baptists are all about getting people saved to go to heaven. We, make, we give invitations saying this. We say, if you thought you were going to die tonight, where would you go? You know, and if Jesus were to come back tonight, what, you know, would you die? Would you go to hell? What would happen to you? Would you be left behind trying to scare people down the aisle? And therefore, it becomes this idea that, okay, now I'm saved to go to heaven. What's next? And I got this twisted idea as a Baptist pastor one day. Because in the Baptist church, we dunk people. You know, we put them under, right? We put them under the water. And I thought to myself, well, gee, if salvation is only about going to heaven, when I put them under the water, if I just hold them down there for 15 minutes, then I know my job's done. Complete. Saved. They're in heaven. I'm in prison, but they're in heaven. You know what I'm saying? The, the illustration is simply this. Salvation is much more than just about going to heaven. It is literally about living the kind of abundant life and being glory carriers throughout the earth where we become agents of transformation. We become agents of transformation and we exalt Jesus Christ. What what did Peter say as he began his sermon? He said, God's servant Jesus Christ was exalted this day through this man's miracle. Now here's what happens very quickly. I'm going to get, I'm really going to try to land this plane in just a minute, but I want you to hear what I'm saying. What happened is because all of these people knew this man, there came this crowd of thousands coming to him. And as they all stood there, they saw this man standing on his own two feet. And as they saw him standing on his own two feet, they were absolutely shocked and amazed. And Peter began to preach another message. And as great as the day of Pentecost and as great as the day of that sermon was, do you know on this day, over 5,000 people came to Jesus Christ? Over 5,000 people were added to the church. And it began a momentum of transformation and revival as you go into Acts chapter 4 and there's some persecution and the religious leaders come against them. And they say, you know, God, don't take it away, but make us bolder. And it says abundant grace at the end of chapter 4 was upon them all. And they were seeing extraordinary signs and wonders and miracles. God was adding to their number daily. And then we get into chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira don't tell the whole truth. And they go to heaven. Uh, I don't think they went to hell. I think they went to heaven. But I just, you know, they had a problem. And and it says literally that the fear of God not only came upon the church, but it came upon the whole city. And although there were many that were afraid to join with them because of the glory that was on them, the glory was so strong, it says many came to believe in Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you, I made a statement earlier that these men were used to bring one of the greatest revivals to the darkest city in the world. I believe at that time Jerusalem was the darkest city in the world. Do you know why? Because when Jesus Christ was before Pontius Pilate, they, the, the people of that city had a choice. They could have chosen Jesus or they could have chosen a murderer. And they chose a murderer and then they said, let his blood be upon us. And, and that was a curse. And now, folks, this is not to hate Jews. Don't get me wrong here. I'm talking about that city at that time. This was a city that cried out for the death of the gift that God sent to save the whole world. And most of us would say that's the darkest city in the world. If you understood the spiritual conditions. But because of this one miracle, there began a, a movement of transformation where tens of thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And that Jerusalem church became the sending church of beginning to multiply churches and disciples all over the world. 
This is one I want to close with is this. We're going to, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to close. And if you want to do an offering and things like that, that's great. But then I'm going to do a time of impartation. I want to pray for all of you today. I want to pray anybody who would like to receive a fresh impartation of Holy Spirit to be someone who brings transformation. Because you see, how many of you know what, when I say the word transformers, how many of you know what a transformer is? Anybody? What is it? What is it? What, what, in our culture, what's a transformer? It's a toy. It's a toy. Right, kids? You guys know what a transformer is? It's a toy. And what is a transformer? What do they do? What happens? Yep, they're alien beings that come to earth and they're here to protect earth and help earth, right? And because they can't just walk out in the open all the time, they turn into things like what? What do they turn into, guys? Cars, planes, what? Robots, they turn into trucks and things like that so that they can stay hidden. So people don't see them like really weird things. But the minute that there's a threat or the minute that something happens, they transform into these awesome, power-filled robots. They're, they're not just robots. They're alien beings that, that they help people. What's that? And they're superheroes. That's right. They're superheroes. They have great power. And so they destroy the powers of darkness. They battle back evil. And they become, they really fight the good fight. And that's you and me. You're a transformer. You walk in regular clothing. You're just an average person. There's nothing that when you look, when somebody will look at you on the outside, there's nothing really strange or unusual or powerful about you. But because you have the same spirit that raised Jesus' dead body from the grave, therefore the glory of God pours out of you, that every miracle that Jesus saw you get to do, every miracle the acts of the, of the apostles saw you get to do, and you become a transformer not only of your own life and of your family's life, but of other people's lives as well. You become someone who transforms not only people, but you transform churches, you transform neighborhoods, you transform cities, and transform cities, transform a nation. So I'm going to, at the end, at, when we're done here, anybody that would either like impartation or would like a prayer for healing uh, for, for anything, I'm willing, we're willing to do that as well. Um, for those of you that have any interest in the healing PTSD thing, uh, rocks, there's some uh, DVDs and CDs back there. If you have somebody who is in the military, or somebody that you know suffers from PTSD. And by the way, they've been told by the Veterans Administration there is no cure for PTSD. Well, folks have thousands of people that say otherwise. Come on, somebody praise God, will you? And I, I've been working with Veterans Administration folks and folks in the government, military chaplains, and we're just seeing amazing radical results because Jesus heals PTSD. If he can heal everything else, he can heal PTSD. So there's some resources on the back table uh, when you go out that uh, you can talk to my amazing wife, Roxanne. But let's just pray because I realize some of you may need to go. But, uh, Father, I just thank you for New Day Community Church. I thank you, Father, because of the legacy, not only of the Toronto blessing, but, God, thank you for the legacy of Azusa Street that is on Cameron and, and his amazing wife, God, and upon this church. Father, we just declare that the hundred-year prophecy that was uttered at Azusa Street, that there would be the greatest revival, even greater than Azusa, would happen. God, why not here? Why not now? Why not me? Let's say it together. Why not here? Why not now? Why not me? In Jesus' name.